the way that anger has been weaponized by this movement that I want to challenge. I mean, I, I uh, when I talk about the religious right, uh, I am angry. I'm angry, but not, I mean, I'm trying not to be angry in an unloving way. You know, in your anger, do not sin. The Bible says, I, I, but I'm angry because my people have been hurt by this. Uh, th this was really used to convince the people who raised me and many, many communities like that, you know, Christian communities in the country mm -hmm. to support an agenda that has next to nothing to do with what the Bible's really about. And now these people are, are so caught up in that that they believe uh, they have to support, you know, one of the most corrupt administrations that we've experienced in this country, and one that is openly racist, that's openly alienating people around the world, uh, that's, you know, putting kids in cages at the border, and do that in the name of Jesus. And I just think what a terrible witness that is for the church and what it's doing to people's souls. you beautiful people. Welcome to 2020 in the year of our Lord. It's another year. I am beginning, what, the second and a half, third? I don't know. Beginning the third year, I think, of this show. Yeah, the three anniversary will be in November, and so let's see what happens from here to there. Uh, a couple quick things. So there is a, I think I've sent out four newsletters, but there is a newsletter sign up on Facebook I don't, I don't think it's actually on the website except for that little pop-up that I'm sure nobody does. Every once in a while, I throw out updates and different things. Uh, I usually use Patreon for most of that, but not everybody's on Patreon. So as I began to compile 2019, like it was over 160,000 some odd downloads of the show, which is mind-blowing considering year one was like 44, 43, 45,000, something like that. And... That is crazy. I am so thankful for every single one of you. Thank you for taking the time to download not only this show, but all the ones in the past. And for those of you that are new, how are you doing? I'm Seth. I'm glad that you're here. There's a massive back catalog. Listen to that if you want. Uh, but I'm happy that you're here. I, I saw on Facebook so many different people recommending the show at the end of the year as one that had given them value. And um, I was humbled by all of that. So thank you to those of you that did that. Uh, thank you especially to the patrons. Last year wouldn't have been a thing, and neither could this year be a thing without every single one of you. And so I would encourage a handful more of you. Let's, let's try to add a couple of those every week. And so you can support the show in any level that you're comfortable with from $1 to uh, more dollars than that. One of the new things I want to try this year as I'm able, I'm going to try to record the video of each episode. And I will post that at a different tier. I haven't decided which tier to just add that to over there at Patreon. For those that want to see the actual interview happen, that will include all the, what should include all the before stuff and all the after stuff that many of you are able to hear over on Patreon. I don't know how to explain that well, but there are two episodes of the show. There's the unedited, all the stuff in between childhood interruption, UPS interruptions, that type of stuff. And then there is the edited mixed down version that you get on the main you know, feeds. So I'm going to try that this year. I've already recorded one of those with Paul Wallace that should be out, I think, sometime in January. There are some other episodes that are coming out in January that were recorded well before I decided to do that. And so for those that just won't be there, this episode is one of those with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. But all that to say, thank you each and every single one of you. I had a blast doing this in 2019. I got to meet and talk with so many of you, either via phone, text, Facebook, 
uh, Skype, you know, FaceTime. It, really, you all are a blessing to my life. And so thank you for being here. All right. I think we did enough of that. Um, for those of you that know me well, I do struggle with that type of conversation. And so I made my way through it. We did it together. Here we go. So today's conversation is is really overtly political. So I chatted with Jonathan Wilson Hargrove about what he calls a revolution of values, where he's trying to reclaim public faith for the common good. And so a lot of his book circles about what is the common good. And when we say values, what do we mean? What are our moral narratives? How have we misread the Bible as we have become addicted to power and fear and othering people? Who do we need to fight against? And, and he argues how our religiosity has misrepresented Christianity at the expense of the poor, the marginalized, and so many other avenues. And so I really think that you'll enjoy this conversation. His book is fantastic, but uh, I really liked this chat. Small little editor's note, for some reason in the middle of it, the internet connection just got really crazy. And so you'll hear him kind of instantly revert to almost having a rasp in his voice. And so I apologize for that. I cleaned it up as much as I could, but it is what it is. And so let's get it rolling. Here we are with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, thank you so much for coming on to the show. I am excited that you're here. Um, been a big fan from afar for many, many years. Just have yet to to find the time to connect. So thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate you being here. I'm glad to be with you. There will be many that, and this is one of my favorite questions that I ask, that, that just aren't familiar with you, that maybe are in a different uh, umbrella of ideas or are just dipping their toes into whatever this rhetorical, sarcastically named podcast is of, yeah, what can we say at church? And so what would you want people to know about you? What's kind of your your story that's made you whatever you are now? Because I think yours is a very yeah. interesting one. Well, I'm a child of the church. I was raised in the Southern Baptist Church in North Carolina in the 1980s, which was the heyday of the moral majority movement. I wanted to do all I could for Jesus, and I thought that meant becoming president of the United States. <laughs> so I tried to um, I tried to do that as a young foot soldier in the um, you know moral majority Christian coalition religious right kind of world. And I went to Page for Strom Thurmond in the U.S. Senate when I was a teenager. And um, in that context, I began to realize that the story that had been told to me about what it meant to be Christian in public was um, uh, didn't line up with what the Sunday school teachers had told me, you know, that Jesus said. And so um, I've spent most of my adult life trying to uh, learn what it means to follow Jesus in public. And I've written this book on the revolution of values to try to weave that history that had impacted me without knowing it together with um, uh, what I've experienced and what many people are experiencing in the country today. I'm going to circle back to something you said. What does it mean to page for somebody? I'm not familiar with that terminology. Yeah, so uh, within the world of uh, Congress, uh, there's a there, you know there's there's a way you can kind of get in on the very bottom of the pecking order, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 
quite exclusive in a weird way that I didn't understand. I wanted to be a page because I wanted to get to know a U.S. senator because I had learned that you couldn't go to the Naval Academy without uh, a recommendation from a U.S. senator, and I didn't know any. Hmm. Uh, so I didn't know how you could become a page, but I went to the Senate, and I learned from a security guard in the observation gallery that the young people who looked like me down on the floor were called pages. So I looked it up and uh, realized that you could apply uh, through your state senator's office, you know, the, your your senator from your state to, um, uh, to yeah, you, you, uh, you're a gopher. <laughs> you work in the office and, you know, you do whatever, you run from one office to another. This is, you know, I guess before as much technology as we have now, but they still have pages. I don't know what the pages do now. Huh. <laughs> I used to run, you know, meeting notes over to the, Senate Armed Service Committee yeah. or whatever. So you would fix the, he'd sit down and go, oh no, no, I need the other binder. This, yeah, I need the blue right. one. I need the blue one. Yeah. Go get me the blue one. Let me get you your water. Let me get huh. you your binder. I didn't know that. Let I mean, me, it makes sense. Me catch Gary before he gets on that elevator and give him <laughs> this note. Yeah, that kind of thing. Hold the door. That's cool. I didn't, I didn't realize that. So Most right. people know about pages because of sex scandals. There have been various, you know, um, sex scandals over the year between yes. usually young female pages and old white men. <laughs> um, yeah, so that has been in the news quite a bit. I recently, over like the last year, just got so mad every time I turned the TV on. Mm. Or read, so I just have I've begun to get my news from international sources about America because they give yeah. me the, Jonathan's wearing a black shirt today. Uh, Seth's going to go to work today. Uh, in related news, there was an earthquake, also a tornado, and mm -hmm. a school burnt down. There's just no opinion. There's just literally what happened. Because I get mm -hmm. so mad, I just get I just get angry. I feel I feel helpless when I watch the news. But I have a feeling mm -hmm. it may go somewhere close there as we as we start talking about. So, a revolution of values is the name of the book. But it's also, uh, as I read, and I can't remember what page it is, what Martin Luther King was asking for. Correct? Like he said, we need that's right. This. So, can you break that down for people that aren't familiar with that part of his history? Um, yeah. Because a lot of people are familiar with just a handful of speeches, and then on Martin Luther King Day, we'll get five memes of the same quote and then people will bicker about it and then we'll move on to whatever day is after Martin Luther King Day. Well, Martin Luther King has been memorialized and made a founding father of the United States as a civil rights leader. And uh, of course his work for the civil rights movement and the you know legislative change that was very real in the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of the mid-60s is, is crucial. But he always understood and realized uh, by engaging the system in that particular way, that the impact of systemic racism on this country was such that uh, it really hurts everybody. And unless uh, everybody who is impacted by it, all the poor people of the country come together across the racial lines, it's impossible to change the system and to, and to have a true democracy. Mm -hmm. So what he was doing at the end of his life was bringing Chicano workers from the Southwest together with black folks from the Mississippi Delta, together with white folks from Appalachia, uh, and, and building a poor people's campaign uh, across uh, the, these you know lines that have been used to split up the working and poor people of America. So um, in the midst of that, uh, he said that this country had to address the evils of racism and militarism and poverty and the way those things intersect to um, benefit an elite class and you know large corporations, but not to benefit most people. Uh, that, that had to be challenged 
and it would it would necessarily bring about a moral revolution of values, he said. That was in his speech at Riverside Church in 1967. Well, um, you know, one thing that was widely recognized at that time in the United States is that he and others in that movement were a moral voice in public life. Um, I think people still recognize that if you go to the National Mall, I mean, he's the only preacher on the mall. Um, so it was widely recognized in the mid-20th century that that these were moral issues, you know, where where the country stands uh, with regard to its uh, policies uh, of racism, policies that impact poor people, policies that, you know, uh, deny immigrants and deny health care to our citizens. Th those are moral issues in the mid-20th century. And um, one of the things I had to learn is that there was a concerted effort to redefine what the moral issues are in public. And that, that effort came to be called the religious right, but its origins were really in the resistance to that movement that we call the civil rights and the women's rights movement of the 60s and 70s. And, and so um, this book tries to tell that history in relation to particular issues that we still talk about today, and to really show how the religious right was a, a very concerted and well-funded effort to teach Americans to misread the Bible on these issues. And so uh, what we're trying to do with today's Poor People's Campaign, um, and what I've really learned from people all across the country who are, who are directly impacted by uh, this injustice, but are reading their Bibles, many of them who are, who are Christian are reading their Bibles right in the midst of that, and, and finding a very different way to hear the good news uh, in those places. So the book goes about uh, rereading the Bible by issue, you know, mm -hmm. voting rights, immigration, poverty, uh, issue by issue. How have we learned to misread the Bible and how can we learn to read it again? That's really what the book's about. One of the notes that I wrote down, so I began, I didn't realize, I, I kind of figured as I was reading the book that it would, it does, it does build on itself. However, uh, every time you'd add a new chapter and there was a new issue, I kept like ticking off, like on a little tick box on my paper, like, okay, we just, we just made all these people angry. And now we just made all these people angry. And now we just made all these people angry. And I thought to myself, yeah. my, my, we're just, yeah, just, um, cause you, yeah, you talked on that. You talk on climate and gender and race and war. I mean, there's so many avenues. I interrupted you. Sorry. Well, I'm just thinking the way that anger has been weaponized by mm. this movement that I want to challenge. I mean, I, I, um, when I talk about the religious right, uh, I am angry. I'm angry, but not, I mean, I'm trying not to be angry in an unloving way. You know, in your anger, do not sin. The Bible says, I, I, but I'm angry because my people have been hurt by this. Uh, th this was really used to convince the people who raised me and many, many communities like that, you know, Christian communities in the country mm -hmm. to support an agenda that has next to nothing to do with what the Bible's really about. And now these people are, are so caught up in that that they believe uh, they have to support, you know, one of the most corrupt administrations that we've experienced in this country, and one that is openly racist, that's openly alienating people around the world, uh, that's, you know, putting kids in cages at the border, and do that in the name of Jesus. And I just think what a terrible witness that is for the church, and what it's doing to people's souls, mm -hmm. to, to, to believe that that has something to do with their faith. So th that's why I'm uh, passionate about this, not only because it's hurting the people, you know, who these policies have impacted. I mean, I am deeply concerned about those children in cages, mm -hmm. about families separated. I'm deeply concerned about poor people in the country. But I'm also 
concerned about the people who've come to believe that this is good. That's really, I'm pastorally concerned for those yeah, you use a term, and it's in the beginning of the book. It's either in the intro or maybe in the first or second chapter of what you call court evangelicals. And so I'll, I'll air quotes that court evangelicals as it relates to like the church standing behind a king, if I remember that yeah. right. Um, That's right. And then you list some names, you know, Falwell, Robertson, uh, Graham, and and I, you know, so I mean the current, you know, Jerry Jr., Franklin Graham, uh, yeah. Pat Robertson. What do you mean when you say court evangelicals? So I'm borrowing that term from John Fea, who wrote a, uh, he's a good historian. He's probably the most important historian who has challenged the uh, myth that's been created to support the Christian nationalist movement. Mm -hmm. So a part of this uh, movement to convince Christians that this uh, extreme right-wing policy agenda was, was a, a values agenda— was um, to create a kind of religious nationalism that says part of what it means to be American is to be, you know, this kind of extreme Christian. And that has required a, a, a whole uh, uh, genre of myths uh, about how, you know, the founding fathers were these, you know, um, right-wing evangelicals, which they weren't, and um, that you know they that, they established a Christian nation uh, in their imagination of what you know a Christian nation would mean. And uh, um, religious nationalism is a huge issue uh, all around the world right now. Uh, it's only Christian nationalism here because um, the majority of the people you know who are in power and trying to hold on to power have called themselves Christian. But we have Hindu nationalism in India. We have hmm. you know. Religious nationalism has been a huge issue in terms of um, some of the extremism we've seen in the Muslim world. Uh, so it's a blending of, um, or it's a not so much a blending as an exploitation of faith uh, for the purpose of, um, you know, exploiting governmental power. And in the United States, that's been done by people who called themselves Christian and did it in alliance with um, really folks who were trying to hold on to a history of white power. Uh, that had been, you know, consolidated over generations uh, in this country. And um, when the, frankly, when the Voting Rights Act was passed in 65, and people began to realize that that was going to change uh, the demographics of this country and the demographics of who voted in this country, it was the Voting Rights Act and it was the new uh, Immigration and Naturalization Act uh, that th those laws passed in the mid-60s and were part of the wins of the civil rights movement, uh, that that created a reaction of people who were anxious about holding on to power. Mm. And when they reached out to Jerry Falwell and others and said, you know, we need to mobilize the white people of the South and get them to vote along with the folks in the suburbs and the people across the Sun Belt, uh, but we can't do this anymore in explicitly racist language. We need to do this uh, by by calling it a moral majority. Uh, that was the foundation of this movement. And I think uh, many, many issues have been shaped to make people believe that they're voting their values when in fact, they're simply supporting this movement to hold on to political power. This is just a bit of context, just because we didn't really talk about this prior. So I decided to go to Liberty after high school, not knowing mm -hmm. a whole lot about Jerry Falwell. Um, at all, although I met You're the man. You're not the only one. Yeah, although I met the man, and face-to-face, -face, usually was really nice to me. Um, but there are a lot of things 
that you write about in the book, specifically about Lynchburg Christian Academy, um, or LCA, as most of us call it that. And yeah. all of it, I, I like I didn't, there's a quote, hold on, let me find it, on 80, well, I don't know if you've changed the page number since this release. Yeah, so in 1967, after Lynchburg finally desegregated its public schools, you said Falwell opened the Lynchburg Christian Academy, which the local paper described as a private school for white students, which is yeah. not how it was advertised to me. As a matter of fact, uh-huh. all the advertisements when I was at Liberty was if you if you live locally and you put your child here, they're going to get a scholarship to come to Liberty University. And so basically you can upfront money now or you can upfront money later, yeah. but yeah. Uh, do it as an investment. But I did mm-hmm. not know... so. Is LCA still that way? And I'm, we may be way off term, but I like when I read that uh, because I'm an alumni from Liberty. I was like, oh my, I didn't, I don't agree with a lot of the theology or politics from Liberty anymore. Matter of fact, uh, Jerry Jr., the president, um, has muted me on every platform that he can because I usually just fix his proof texting or respond to something with scripture when he says something that I disagree with. Um, so now I just email him because you can't mute that. But, but is it still that way, like inherently that way? Like does the moral majority still exist in that way and in that capacity at our university type level, or is it lost its power? One of the things I'm really trying to help Christians understand is how systems work. Systems work to keep the same people in power, but the ideas change. Hmm. So no, almost no one is explicitly racist, Right because uh, there's a liberal consensus in the country. And, I, and I'm not talking about you know liberals versus conservatives here. I'm talking about like what, what most people in modern America think, that you know, uh, calling someone the N-word or having all white institutions is un-American. So no, Liberty University does not use that kind of language anymore. They did a lot of work to scrub that history because yeah. they were embarrassed about it. Mm-hmm. And Jerry Jr. tells a very different story now about how all this came to be. But what I'm trying to say is that the power that was gained through explicit racism is now being maintained by uh, cloaking that set of values, not around white values, but around religious values, right? And so they're very white values, right? The, 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 the values of um, uh, a particular party, you know, being in power, uh, a particular imagination of family being sort of nostalgically lifted up and uh, and this alliance with the, I, I mean, for example, just one example here, you ask yourself, how could you call biblical values something that is explicitly pro-corporation? I mean, the, the, the single uh, hallmark legislative achievement of this administration is a huge corporate tax cut. That's at the end of the day, that's what everybody will say. It makes it worth it. This huge corporate tax cut. How can you read the Bible and say that God's primary concern is about the flourishing of corporations and extremely wealthy people? You can't read the prophets that way. You can't read Jesus that way. But but this gets imagined as a sort of biblical value because the uh, uh, the whole system that has been set up to support that uh, way of being in that way of making money and celebrating success and progress and, you know, an economy that's doing well, um, has been given this kind of Christian veneer. Mm-hmm. And so you say it's good for the country. You say it's, you know, it's good for all people. 
and that somehow becomes Christian over and against everything that the Bible actually says. Yeah. And so, yeah, so these, so these are not people who are going to be explicitly racist. And I'm not saying that, you know, people hate black folks. I'm saying that people are, are religiously committed to perpetuating a system that has maintained a wealth disparity between white and black folks for the whole history of this country. I read some reviews of your book that came out overnight because if I remember, so at recording, I'm pretty sure it came out today, right? Like today's today, the, today yeah, is yeah. the launch day. Um, and so I am definitely behind the eight ball. And for those that are listening that are like, oh, what day was that? That is December 3rd. There we go. I had to cheat and look at my clock. Um, December 3rd, first yeah. week of Advent. Happy New Year. Some of the critique that I've read is you're setting up straw men like about climate and about racism and about Me Too and about sex and gender and war and then knocking them down with proof text and like basically saying well he's just a social justice warrior racism mm -hmm. isn't really a thing anymore and we can't go back and change anything so sorry it's your problem mm -hmm. how do you respond to that because yeah that's I, I get that question often even from family like you're just reading what you want to read and i'm like i mean i feel like i'm not i feel like i'm taking matthew 25 which seems to be categorically what jesus said here's what my people do. And then yeah. uh, if it's not in that, I don't do it. So sorry if it upsets you. you yeah. Know. So I've been, I've been having these conversations all of my adult life now. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not real interested in the back and forth. What I did with this book is begin every chapter with um, what's really more journalism than I've ever done in mm -hmm. a book. I, I decided to focus pretty deeply on one particular story mm -hmm someone who's been impacted by that issue. And if anybody wants to, you know, dispute my reporting, they can try, but it's, it's pretty well documented. And these people, almost all of them are still alive. So mm -hmm. they can go interview them if they want to. Uh, these are true stories about how people have actually been impacted by these issues. And then I try to say how the religious right has read the Bible to, you know, create policies that have impacted people in that way. And to show how these very people and people, you know, in a, a movement like the Poor People's Campaign with them read the Bible differently. Yeah. And um, I, I just want to present that as a moral narrative that it isn't about how I read the Bible. It's about how lots of people read the Bible and how lots of people through history have read the Bible. And I, what I want to argue, uh, if there's an argument to be had, is that um, the distortion of um uh, so-called biblical values by the religious right is what's unorthodox, uh, both historically and in terms of world Christianity. It's just not what Christianity has meant in most places at most times. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I want to challenge it as a Christian author, as a preacher, uh, for the sake of the church and for the sake of people uh, realizing that they've been misled, not because these arguments are very persuasive, but because, and this is why I think it's important to give people the history, because an incredible amount, I'm talking hundreds of millions of dollars has been invested in a disinformation campaign. I mean, I, I don't think people realize that, you know, Christian radio was not created to give you, you know, spiritual nourishment. It was created by the very people who wanted to orchestrate a connection between the white Christian community and the Republican Party in order to build a narrative that could call everything else fake news. And we're seeing the fruit of that. That's, yeah. that you know, you can blame it on Donald Trump, but it's, it's just not the case that it, it, 
he was not even there when they were, I mean, he was not in their camp when they were orchestrating this thing. It took 40 years to build this. And, you know, he was busy building casinos when they were beginning to build this thing. start with a story at the beginning um, that I'd rather let people read about the border and there's a it's a beautiful imagery of walking through the water for families to be met that have been decimated and I'm from southwest Texas so Mm. a lot Mm. of that rings true like a lot of that rings true Uh, but I think that's a better story like literally was gripping as I read it I want to talk instead about a few of the other stories if we can and kind of break Mm -hmm. those apart because some of these I wasn't familiar with um, yeah. And so for someone like myself, I appreciate the journalism because then I could Google it. Like you've got quotes and here's what's the name of this. And it was on this documentary or whatever it was. Um, yeah. One of them is a story of Alicia Wilson. And how did it hold on? Where does it start? Hold on. Yeah, she was a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary. And then for some reason, I wasn't expecting Mike Pence to come into that story, but it, mm. it, it did. Um, yeah. Can well, you she moved to Indiana. Yeah, yeah. Well, can yeah. you break apart that story just in brief, kind of what happened and why it matters? Well, I, I tell it in the chapter on women's rights because I think the way the Christian right, religious right, weaponized the Bible against the women's movement is really important for us to understand. It shaped a lot. It's shaped a lot of uh, what we've inherited. Uh, so Alicia's experience was that she grew up in a very white evangelical uh, world where sort of biblical values language was in the air. She talked to me about how you know she and her mom listened to Focus on the Family radio growing up, and uh, that institution had you know played a huge part in this story that I'm telling. Um, and she very much wanted to live into those values. Uh, things that she was told in that place were important, like, um, you, you know, um, uh, being faithful in marriage and, you know, purity before marriage and these, uh, th- th- these things that were, uh, that were told to her. And, uh, I think her story is important because, you know, in every way you could imagine, you know, from within that world, she was sort of true to the script. And then when she gets to Indiana and she's preparing to get married, you know, to her uh, evangelical husband, who, you know, also has very much thought about preparing for marriage in the same way, uh, uh, she went to her uh, doctor and got an IUD, um, uh, you know, for this purpose of planning their family. And uh, then she got a bill from her insurance company that said they were using the Religious Freedom Act that mm-hmm. Mike Pence had passed to uh, deny uh, payment for her uh, particular form of contraception because they said it violated their religious freedom. <laughs> and so I think it, it's a story that begins to demonstrate how uh, this is much more about money than it's about anybody's you know value for life. Uh, I hope no one would question Alicia's commitment to life. Um, I mean, the the sister uh, again, you know, as a former seminarian who now works for a nonprofit. I mean, she works she works to serve her community there in Indianapolis. Um, but she was uh, accused of being, you know, uh, someone who was 
against pro-life because of a decision she and her husband made in planning for their family and a healthcare decision that they made that was denied because of this uh, religious freedom. And they ended up with this huge bill that they, they finally, um, though they challenged it in court uh, with help of a legal firm, they finally ended up just paying the bill because they wanted to move on. Yeah. And um, I, I, I think it's a story that reflects uh, how twisted uh, all of this has gotten uh, in terms of really demonizing women and the choices that women have to make, um, uh, choices that, you know, are complicated and not simple and straightforward, but certainly aren't about, you know, whether you're for or against life. Uh, th that framing of it has uh, just been used to uh, demonize people and frankly to, to, to demonize women. For context, so that same Alicia Wilson is the same Alicia Baker that was in Kavanaugh's hearing, correct? She testified at Kavanaugh's yeah, hearing, that's right. which is just, as I read that, I also was like, huh. Which doesn't necessarily shed light on Kavanaugh as a person, but it does, it just, it, it's amazing how small oh, the world right. her, is. Her testimony really had nothing to do with the, I think, very credible accusations that mm -hmm. were made against him as a teenager. Yeah. Uh, the... Her her testimony was about his legal record, right, and yeah. his support for these religious liberty laws that had been weaponized against her, and that's why I wanted to tell her story within the whole context of the Me Too and Church Too and all. I mean, there, there's a lot of talk right now about how women have been hurt mm -hmm. by this purity culture, um, but I, but I really want to focus on the policy yeah. and say yes, there are individual victims, but we can't just you know say we're going to take more responsibility about the bad actors because there are systemic issues that have been uh, uh, there all along and that the narrative has been used to support. Do you know if that uh, company, I can't remember the name of the company that declined her IUD, if they had the same issue with just regular birth control pills? Or is it like is it like a, a policy of, yeah, just no birth control, period? Or we're just going to silo out this one just because just cause reasons? I don't think that particular country, that particular company is entirely against birth control, although there are some uh, companies usually more connected to the Catholic yeah. world uh, that, that are entirely opposed to birth control. Uh, this this one was calling it a form of abortion, uh, you know, based on their interpretation. Uh, this is a, this is a, you don't want lawyers uh, arguing uh, medical or ethical decisions, frankly. They have reasoned that, you know, they're not, because it's a, it's, it's something that gives them an out, right? Yeah. It's, it's an argument they can make for why not to pay for something. I'm trying to find the page and I can't, so hopefully you can remember. There is a guy, Bill Buckingham, and so I wanted to pivot a bit because, um, especially in the coming months, you know, as we walk into January and through the remainder of the year, immigration is going to get a massive amount of talk, um, and as will climate, and then, you know, young earth creationism, and it's just, it's a hot mess. Um, but Bill Buckingham is a name that I wasn't familiar with, nor was I really aware of the impact that that person had on the textbooks that I had in Southwest Texas growing up, yeah. uh, as well as I'm sure many others, because Texas, California, New York, they set the textbooks for the entire country because those are the biggest, oh, that's right. yeah, like McGraw-Hill, mm -hmm. you know, if, if I'm making it for Texas, that's 50 million copies. So I'm not making a different yeah. edition. They all get this. Who is Bill Buckingham and, and what has been kind of his story and the impact that it's had on us for today? Well, um, on the issue of immigration, uh, I really don't want to make this about any particular individual. I mean, there are 
there are instances, you know, in the book that I'll encourage people to read because, you know, you have to get specific mm -hmm. in order to, you know, see how things work. But I don't want to suggest that it's about any single actor. Uh, yeah, let me just yeah. be clear about that. Yeah. It's, not, it's not like there's one bad guy behind the curtain. Oh, <laughs> no, it's been there so, since, it's been there since like, what, Johnson, President Johnson, you know, as we, there's a yeah. lot of story. I remember actually listening to a different podcast about, um, I forget what president it was. It might have been Johnson, where they moved the border security into a different department, and then the guy that ran that department and the secretary was like an ex-marine, like whatever the highest general, admiral, whatever that yeah. is. And he's like, "Oh, this yeah. is too porous. It's not safe." And then changed all mm -hmm. those policies to where people came to do some migrant work, expecting to go home because yeah. that's what we did last year. And now I have to right. choose. I can't go home. Uh, you, right. I didn't cross the border. The border kind of crossed me to use a line from propaganda. Yeah. And then now do I have to break the law to get my family here? Or do I need to break the law to go back? I also right. made some money and my kids are hungry, but baby girl has a birthday coming up maybe in a week. Like, what do we do here? Um, yeah, right. yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's, it's decades of people. Yeah. So the story that I try to tell that, 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 that I think is important is how on the issue of immigration, uh, actually conservatives tried for some time um, folks within this religious right movement tried for some time to convince um, uh, what they thought of as you know potential Hispanic voters to get on board with their pro-family pro-life agenda and so there's a whole history of that in the 80s and 90s uh, but one of the things that happened ultimately and this is a lot of what led to the kind of Trumpism and you know build that wall kind of um, sloganism that we see today is um, the the movement realized the political movement realized that the demographics were such that they simply uh, couldn't convince enough black and brown people to embrace white values. Mm -hmm. I mean, to, to put it crassly, that's that, that's what happened. And so it, it necessarily had to become an anti-immigrant movement in order to keep the same agenda. Yeah. And um, we've seen that really, really turn, you know, vicious. Mm -hmm. I think largely since 9-11, right, because it's first an anti-Muslim um, you know, so-called anti-terrorist movement, and then it increasingly demonizes all brown people um, who who might come from the South as a potential threat. Now, that's not new. Anti-immigrant you know, immigrant sentiment has been there many times through American history, so they had a lot to appeal to. As a matter of fact, you know, the original kind of America first uh, language from the uh, 1920s and 30s was a was very anti-immigrant mm -hmm. um, you know, this, this, this sense that, you know, real Americans are what this, you know, government is for and, and people coming from elsewhere, you know, you know, are not. So, so sometimes we, I think romantically, you know, talk about how we, we we're a country of immigrants. We, you know, we've, we've, we've always been a country of immigrants, but as a matter of fact, there are many periods at which, particularly when, you know, um, immigration numbers went up, that people in control saw that as a potential threat yeah. and, and demon those people. And that's what we're experiencing today. Um, I think when it, from immigration to voter suppression, um, it really is about holding on to power and the, uh, the threat of uh, people who simply wouldn't embrace uh, the way that the language of America and democracy has been twisted to uh, support the perpetuation of power for an increasingly smaller minority. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. I want to circle back to my question a minute ago. So Bill Buckingham, I found the page. Um, okay. Says that he says that's fair enough. That's fair enough. So it says so for those who for context, he's a school board member who chaired curriculum committee in Dover. I'm assuming that's Delaware. Is that unless there's Dover somewhere else? I don't know of another Dover. Is it Delaware? Oh, okay, we're looking at the no, no, we're looking at the um, we're looking at the controversy, the, the textbook controversy in Pennsylvania. Oh, right is, it, is, it, is it okay? Yeah. So he said it's laced with Darwinism, and then you go on to say, you know, for Buckingham. Um, David Barton, who's a, a previous author that you quote literally on the other page, you know, his myth of a shared Christian past wasn't enough to guarantee that the next generation of Americans will embrace the values of Christian nationalism. And so he started arguing against, you know, the the textbook that had any, let's say, current science in it, uh, yeah. as if the Bible is a science book. It's not. Um, I'm just going to, I very rarely give blunt opinions, but I'm just going to say that one. The Bible is not a science okay, textbook. I agree with that opinion. <laughs> so, Having studied um, the Bible, I don't think it's a science book. Yeah, yeah. So what has, so what did that do? So Bill Buckingham does that, and then, like, what happens? Like, how does that impact us even yeah. still today? Right, so he's a, he's a local person in a local community who embraced the narrative that was being pushed by the whole um creation science movement, and then uh, uh, as that was debunked, it increasingly became an intelligent design mm -hmm. movement, um, but they have found different ways to basically uh, argue that you can use the Bible to discredit science, and that the two are opposed to one another, thereby, you know, uh, trying to compel people of faith whenever there's a, a um, an issue where science opposes their agenda, to say on the basis of their faith, we just won't believe the science. And so this is how this is the primary argument that's been used against climate science. I mean, the science is pretty indisputable. It has been for a long time. Uh, the conversation is beginning to shift a little bit because the science is not only predictive, it's also descriptive now, right? Yeah. Like we're seeing the floods and the fires and yeah. the droughts that were predicted for 20 years more than 20 years. Um, and so, so, so that's beginning to change a little bit. It's a little bit harder to deny what you see, although we see some of that too. Yep. Um, uh, the, 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 the way to combat it though, was with this anti-science narrative and folks uh, were encouraged by the religious right and by the institutions of the religious right to run for the local school board, to get on there, to have a position of influence mm -hmm. and to um, use these textbooks that their companies were created. Again, it's a business. I mean, people had self-interest in it also um, use these textbooks or to, uh, 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 to um, at least argue that, you know, this in terms of like fair play, you know, these textbooks had to get a hearing too, um, <laughs> even though, they, they weren't based in really any credible science. It's a, it's a way, you know, I, I think it's an instructive uh, in another way because it's a tactic that has actually spread through the movement in which um, this movement has decided that you don't actually have to convince most people that your uh, position is true or good for most people. Uh, you can, uh, through using the tactics of disruption, you can simply uh, uh, create enough chaos that it's not possible to yeah. build a coalition that can oppose you. And uh, I think we see that across a lot of issues right now. Yeah. That, uh, uh, you know, this current administration is often not really all that interested in getting anything in particular done. They just want to create enough chaos that um, 
that people can't unite against them. And uh, I think it's important to know the history of that in order to uh, understand how we need to organize in the present. Yeah, I want to I want to read a bit here, but I want to segue it into my last question, because in my mind, um, and you're talking about young people of faith, and I'm going to classify myself as young because I feel like it. I don't know what the age limit is All for right. young, but I'm going to say young. Why not? Um <laughs> So you say, uh, and this is in that same part about science, um, young people of faith have been drawn, however, to reread their Bibles alongside the struggle for climate justice at places like Oak Flat and Standing Rock, in these places where non-natives have been invited to learn what our world looks like from the perspective of colonized indigenous people, the Bible's concern for land takes on new meaning, and then I'll paraphrase the rest, which is basically that we have the same obligation to keep God's commandments that we do to keep the earth. Like it's the same Hebrew word, like that keep matters. It's yeah. not, not to have dominion over, to keep it. And then that suggests that creation care is important as any religious obligation. Um, but the part that I want to zone in on there is young people of faith have been drawn, however, to reread their Bibles. And you talked about this way at the beginning. Like I think it's one of the first thing you said, you know, how should we read the Bible? Because yeah. as people, personally as well, as I wrestle with theology and God in a way that I am being stretched and I learn new things, I lose community. I, I, people get attacked. Uh, and then when you lose community and you're attacked, your anxiety just goes through the roof. And so yeah. as people struggle with not only your book, but the concepts of the book, um, as they begin to dig in, and I would argue and agree with you, yes, the, there's massive systemic issues. Whether or not you want to agree with that, that's up to you. But I believe that there are, and, and obviously you do as well. So how do, how do we read the Bible in such a way that we are enticed to new communities, but we can also <laughs> handle that anxiety healthily? Because if not, I feel yeah. like also many young people are just jettisoning from the church, pulling the eject cord. I hope that I land in the ocean somewhere and I'm safe because yeah. I can't be yeah. involved with that garbage anymore. Uh, and I, right. wouldn't, I wouldn't argue against that, actually. I agree. I also can't be involved in that garbage anymore. Yeah, no, I think this is an important issue. Um, you know, if you go back and study abolitionism uh, in the 19th century, the people who were the most ardent abolitionists, uh, they wrote down their arguments, which is why, you know, we can listen most closely to them. Um, they were almost across the board, people of deep faith. They wrote about why they were opposed to um, slavery in terms of their faith. Um, but they were also in tension with the established church in most places, right? Um, and so there were there's a whole group of them who called themselves come outers back then. Hmm. And uh, I think about the come outers of the 19th century a lot when I look at Pew's data today on the nuns, you know. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the history of the religious right that I chronicle here, you know, a 40 year history. Um, you can also put that history beside the Pew data on the nuns, people who when asked, what is your religious affiliation? They say none. And uh, it maps where that number has doubled every decade that this uh, movement has been building, right? So it's the fastest growing religious group in the country. Uh, and it's a lot of people who have some previous history with this yeah. kind of Christianity that has been co-opted by political operatives, and they want nothing to do with that, and so they call themselves none now, um, which often means, like you're saying, they don't have a at least a place where they feel spiritually at home, 
And uh, that can create a lot of anxiety and loneliness and um, uh, a sense of, uh, I think, distance, not, not just from community, but from God. And um, I really do consider this work to bring about a revolution of values and to build a movement of people who are connecting their deepest faith commitments with a, a pursuit of justice and the common good and public life as pastoral work, because we have to build new institutions. We have to build new movements for people to be part of. And, you know, that's not simple. It's not going to look like, you know, the parish you can walk to in your community in every place. Um, uh, and so, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm really committed to doing this work through the Poor People's Campaign, and that's movement building work. So it's about, you know, creating networks of people who can gather to bear public witness together. Uh, but, you know, I also uh, am committed to helping people learn prayer practices that they can share in their homes. And I've been part of this common prayer movement that hundreds of thousands of people around the world use to have spiritual practices, liturgical practices in their living rooms and in their you know, community centers and in prison cells and other places where people are using it to, to have a, a, a way of rooting themselves in a story that tells them who they are. Yeah. Um, so I think these, I think it's, it, it's a, it's a moment of transformation that we're living through, and I don't think we know entirely what it's going to look like. Uh, my friend who has uh, crossed over to the other side now, Phyllis Tickle, used to talk about it as the, the great emergence. Yeah. Uh, she talked about it with a lot of enthusiasm, you know, that yeah. something new is emerging. We don't know what it's going to be yet, but we're part of that. And uh, I, yeah. I feel that way, too. And I, I, I do meet people who are anxious, but I also meet people who are discovering new ways of being church together. And I'm encouraged by that. Phyllis's work, I forget which she also, what she call it? The, the, the grand rummage or grand rummage cell or something like that. Yeah. Like every like, 500 years. Yeah. The great rummage which when you kind of look back through, you're like not quite 500 years on the dot, but it's a rounding error. You seem to be on the money here, which makes yeah. the generation that you and I are living in that generation. Like if there's a hundred year wiggle room, that's mine and your generation, maybe my kids, um, which is both yeah. encouraging but also really scary because you can just as equally burn the house down as you can renovate it. Like no. you can just as equally do both. And, you know, we have, we, we the church remembers saints from these eras uh, because there's, you know, powerful witness that's come out of these, but we also remember saints because they died, Yeah, you know? And um, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I think it's important to realize that a lot is at stake in these moments and uh, they're hard choices that have to be made. Yeah, absolutely. Jonathan, I it has been uh, so it was a joy to be stretched a bit by your book. Um, uncomfortable, but it was a joy. But I really have enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate you making the time to come on. Well, it's great to be with you and uh, your listeners. Bless y'all. So as I've pondered Jonathan's book and our chat. One of the things that is entirely hard about a redefining of what value should be attached to the church is often you're going to lose your community, uh, which is one of the reasons I'm so thankful for the community that has been sprung out of the tr- out of the conversations from this podcast. Um, my last few years would have been really difficult without every single one of you. So uh, thank you for that, but. As you're wrestling with this, as we walk into this politically charged year, especially in America, be mindful of what you say, 
I know I'm going to try to be, and realize that other people are going to disagree on so many different things, but we really need to come back to agreeing on the value of humanity, regardless of socioeconomic structures, the abuse of fear and bondage. And just when we talk about truth, everybody's truth is going to be tinted with what is being poured into their head. And that doesn't make anybody's truth more better than the other. Uh, Because the one huge truth is Christ and it's love. And so if it's not in line with that truth, it's just not true. And that's just my personal opinion there. For the foreseeable future, um, I'm trying to dedicate my time to finishing the backlog of transcriptions. And so I reached out to Salt of the Sound and asked, hey, can I use your music in a more ongoing way? Because it's really beautiful. I pray often to it when I pray down uh, and I want to get quiet. I I still want to have a little bit of background noise because for me, music is very divine. And I I often hear and talk to God through music. And so uh, special thanks to them for their use of music in this show, as well as many in, in in the weeks to come. Do click through the link, support their work. It's fantastic stuff. Really, really good stuff. Um, and then, yeah, rate and review the show. Last year, the show grew at like a 94% clip. So tell a friend about the show. Review it. Share it. Uh, and do please consider supporting the show either through Glow or through Patreon. You'll find both those links in the show notes or over at the website. There's just a little button in the top right there that says Patreon. It'll take you to all the places and all the links. I'm so thankful you were here. I can't wait to talk to you next week. Got a huge January in store for you. Be blessed, everybody.